When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Randy Backer from the Guess Who and BTO, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. Christian Swain here. I am the rock and roll archaeologist, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco today. Okay, here is the news. Pantheon Podcasts, in partnership with Jamcart, is pleased to announce our newest show, How I Got the Gig with Elmo Lovano. Jamcard is the Music Professionals Network. If you are a working professional musician, then you want to join. And if you are today an amateur or a fan, then you want to know all you can about Jamcard. Keep those ears open, and we will let you know in the next few weeks when the first How I Got the Gig with Elmo Lovano drops. All right. Of course, you can find all you need to know at rockandrollarchaeology.com or pantheonpodcast.com as well. Finally, and this is the one that matters most to us, if you enjoy what we do here, then please tell a friend. Thank you. Okay, business handled. We are good. Hit it. really love when I get to sit down with some of the greatest sidemen in rock and roll. There are always a lot of interesting stories and crazy rock and roll times, and every once in a while you discover they were the secret weapon who made a chart-topping song really special, or a famous artist's particular album shine more than their others. Today, we have Hunt Sales teed up for you, and he is a secret weapon. Hunt, along with bassist brother Tony, have anchored several greats over the decades, uh, most famously as part of David Bowie's Tin Machine Band in the late 80s and early 90s, a real band meant to be shared equally by its four members and not a Bowie side project that the Suits and Rock Press wanted to make of it. Hunt and Tony also worked with Todd Rundgren on his first two records, and they were the backbone for Iggy Pop on his late 70s run. Yeah, that is Hunt's big drums on Lust for Life. Uh, we will talk about that recording today. After decades playing behind the band, he is now stepping out in front with his first solo record, Get Your Shit Together, recorded in Memphis and on Big Legal Mess Records. It is a big, raw, and honest rock and roll album of songs penned by Hunt. We highly recommend it. 
Okay, okay, let's get down and dirty with Hunt Sales. Welcome to Deeper Digs and Rock Hunt Sales. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, yeah. So you have a solo album out on January 25th, uh, 12 original Hunt Sales composition. And and we'll get into that in, in just a bit. But my first okay. question is, you know, you've been in this rock and roll game for a long time. So, you know, what do you think the state of rock is today? Um. Well, I'm, there's been times if we go back in music, rock and roll is nothing new at this point. And there was a time when, God, you have a you have electric guitar and you have long hair. Wow! And uh, yeah, you were was, a real outsider, it, right? Right. Yeah, you were a real outsider and rock and roll. Okay, let's say, let's say Bill Haley and the Comets uh, were the first commercial. You know, there was Louis Jordan and other people doing jump swing rock. You know, uh, uh, primarily black for trainers. These bands that came out of the 40s, 50s, but okay. So let's say 57, 56, Elvis, whatever. Um, and then you had, then it got weird for a minute. And then the Beatles, the Beatles came right. out. Yeah. And um, um, okay. Now, how many years has it been since the Beatles? Um, it's been <laughs> quite a, years. <laughs> okay. How long has it been since Nirvana? Oh, 30? 30 years. Yeah. So now we're, we're coming into a weird place where there's it's all fragmented as far as music. And that's, uh, I remember uh, when we had Tin Machine, we were in Europe, and some interviewer said, Sting said rock and roll was dead. And uh, I said, well, maybe Sting is dead. Uh, but... Um, <laughs> Why, will rock and roll ever die? No. Does it mean what it meant? Uh, it was this music at a certain point um, where the uh, parents would say, what is that? Turn that off. And it was dangerous. And um, then, yeah, yeah. Now, now you hear it uh, walking through the mall uh, these days. Exactly. And then um, with, um, and then some people talked years ago, about record labels at a certain point not reinvesting into music in a way that would bring new artists, okay? And then everything, we got words like demographics and this and that, and everyone was an expert. When really a lot of these people back in the day, in the 60s, uh, or even if it was the guy, Nathan, whatever his name, that ran James Brown, King Records, was like, oh, I don't know what this stuff is, but let's record it, throw it up against the wall, and if it sticks, well, then cool. 
it became, well, we know what's happening. We're going to market this. And, and basically, I myself did not see the labels reinvesting um, where you could maybe do one or two albums that didn't make it. And then maybe by your third album, they were dropping people that only sold a half a million records because there were other people selling 10 million records, if you know what I mean. I, so, I, I um, know exactly what you mean. Yeah, so yeah. there was a no lot minor of, leagues. Yeah, no minor league. And then then um, the world of DJs and let's don't book bands anymore. We can get a guy with a record player. Now, that's always been around, but that became a main staple. And then uh, the entertainment world, bigger venues, the money got big, like sports, um, the way sports got gigantic opposed to Mickey Mantle making 40,000 a year. Now you guys got, you guys are making 42 million a year. Right. So, uh, the uh, money times changing, um, uh, everything is the same and then everything is different. And, and, um, rap music. Yeah. It's got, it's more of the street. It's dangerous. Yeah. And it, it's um, though it's it's probably the closest thing to rock and roll back in the day in the sense oh, yeah. of oh, the, the danger. Mm -hmm. And um, kids now they want a cell phone. Uh, kids now like rap. Um, rock and roll shows. A lot of rock and roll shows. If you go to them, yeah, there's some young people there, but let's get. Uh, shows I've been to, there's a lot of people now in their 50s, 40s, and 60s. Yeah. Um, and is, are, are the younger kids, uh, is it speaking to them? Uh, why is it not speaking to them? Okay. You know, now, it, it's different now. It, it's just, it's different. Does that mean there's not... If you want to consider them rock and roll, I'll, I'll pick a band, which is not, you know, let's say Slipknot, mm -hmm, okay, mm -hmm. which has an element of, uh, they have a great live show, and they'll get 50,000 yeah, people Yeah, there's a bit out. of danger to it. They wear masks. Yeah, there's some uh, danger to you know, it. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, it's a mystery and, and what have you. So, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're not going to hear them on top uh top 40 radio and um there's so many there's no real one scene now it's all fragmented. it's just this yeah. yeah fragmented and um i don't know uh what would come out i mean you've got country music now that sounds like bad 70s rock and oh rock. yeah yeah and it's almost like, it's almost classic rock right yeah that 70s mm -hmm. classic rock yeah yeah right and um and then you have whatever version of blues now that sounds nothing like the stuff from the early 60s. It almost sounds, if you put on the early blues records, I don't mean the real early ones from the 30s, 40s, 50s, but even 60s stuff sounds almost like the energy of a punk band. And um, to me, um, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? The really cool blues stuff uh, whether it be snatch it back, snatch it back, and hold it, Buddy Guy and Junior Wells, those records—they got an exciting thing. And there's a bunch of other cats, you know, blues guys. Um, so where are we now? It's uh, it's so strange out there. And uh, tickets went on sale for 
$1,500 each for the Rolling Stones. And um, <laughs> uh, so, I know I got one. So, <laughs> but, uh, well, yeah, so. I mean, um, yeah, literally I mean, they, the pit, the pit, the pit uh, 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 tickets were 1500 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Face, face now, value. Now, That's crazy. Yeah. Now I know there's a lot of, there's some new young bands out of Detroit and out of Europe uh, and um, kind of the stance of, let's say, uh, Deep Purple or Zeppelin or this and that that have riffs. Yeah, like but Greta Van Fleet. Not, yeah, yeah. Right, but I am not hearing any songs. Uh, and yeah, yeah. Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin had great songs. Yeah, it all say. comes down they to that. They had some and it really does. Yeah. So what you have is like, uh, you know, I, I took my daughter to Krispy Kreme and guy came up to me and said, you look like a rock and roller. I went, oh yeah, I play music, whatever. <laughs> and I'm my kid's father is what I am. But he said, and it, and it was interesting what he said to me. He said, you know, I like rock and roll. I said, cool. He said, I like the old stuff. And I'm waiting to hear what was old to him. He said, like the Nirvana and Guns N' Roses. Okay. That's, yeah, that's not that good. old, but sure. Okay. <laughs> and here's, here's what his complaint was to me. He said, but there's no new stuff out. And I would really dig some new rock and roll. Interesting. Um, does that mean that he doesn't, you know, he's not hearing some people doing some rock and roll now? Well, okay. So he's got a point there. And, um, what is out there right now that's raw that that has some songs and da 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 the rest now if the Foo Fighters and they're all you know they're great and all that if they're the number one rock and roll band to see to me they're a pop band yeah um, yeah I don't look at them I mean yeah they've got rock and roll elements but to me and I'm not knocking them but that to me that's not rock and roll now um. I guess it's a form of it, but not what I've seen, uh, what I came up with. You know what I mean? Uh, anywhere from seeing uh, Louis Jordan play to Led Zeppelin's first gig in New York to Cream's first gig, and so on and so on. And then the records that I've been involved with and the people I've played with, they'd have been basically rock and roll. Yeah. Right? I mean, um, so uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's just really it's, it's, weird it's, right it's now. It's a big open question. I just, uh, you know, I, I usually ask uh, the, the folks that I interview, you know, where where do you think the music is? But now a, a lot of people don't know you and your brother, Tony, and, and how much you you two have contributed to uh, the music of the, of the last uh, 50 years. Um, but so let's get the folks uh, to the beginning, you actually grew up in a in a showbiz family. Your your father was a very famous comedian, uh, and whose work in in many instances was for was kind of geared towards children. And his name was Soupy Sales. So tell us a little bit about right. growing up in the fifties in that world. Well, my father started in radio, and then someone came up to him and said, "We have this show. We'd like you, you know, if you're interested in doing it, a kids show." And I started doing this show, and this is in Detroit. And my dad became the biggest thing in Detroit and around the country. And then later, to uh, we went on to Los Angeles, and then ultimately to New York City, where his show was gigantic. But what it was, it started as a kids show, but really, and it, and let me use this: um, the few entertain entertainers, whether 
whether I let's pick a musical band to compare my father to the Beatles, the Beatles, kids like the Beatles, the high school kids like the Beatles, the college kids like the Beatles and the adults like the Beatles. Mm -hmm. So my dad's show was a lot like that. It was like it it appealed to everybody. It appealed to everyone. Mm -hmm. And outside of sports and a few different things, who has that kind of range? You know what I mean? As far as entertainment, you know what I'm saying? You Mm -hmm. have entertainment for adults. You have entertainment for kids. Mm -hmm. You have entertainment for, it's segmented, right? Segmented. And the Beatles and and several other uh, recording artists really had that spread where it's like from from eight-year-olds up to seven-year-olds like them, okay? And um, that's what my dad had. And um, it was very interesting to see that. In fact, my dad did the Ed Sullivan show, which was a variety show with the Beatles, okay? Mm -hmm. Which were two of the big acts at that time in the 60s to have my dad and the Beatles on the same show. So, um, you know, um, I started professionally in 1965 recording for a label at the time called Roulette Records. Right. And uh, a famous guy named Morris Levy on the label. And Morris Levy had um, one of the acts, big acts was Tommy James and the Shondells, but he had a ton of acts. And uh, that was at 11 years old to get a musician's union card and then to go down to social security and get a social security number at 11 years old. Um, I'd say that's a little bit different. You yeah, know. I'd uh, say that's a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. So here I am, 11 year old working <laughs> in an adult world, you know, recording, uh, uh, recording sessions, doing gigs and stuff. And um, I started my brother and I, I guess I was six. My brother's two years old or a little older. So he's eight years old. And we start playing you know, or try to play musical instruments. Now, and, your your dad was a, a big jazz fan. So did you did you pick up on that from him? Yeah, definitely. That's what was played in our house was jazz. Mm-hmm. A lot of jazz. So it got me into Duke Ellington, Count Basie, uh, Buddy Rich, and all people like that. You yeah, know what Gene I mean? Grubo, uh, Miles, Miles Bell, Davis. And, and, yeah, yeah, Louis yeah. Bosson, Miles Davis, all uh-huh. that stuff. Because yeah. um, your drumming it, style I, definitely has a lot of that big band drummer uh, feel to it. Yeah, well, in my mind as a kid, I, people have different fantasies, you know. Yeah. Everyone everyone has fantasies. We don't need to talk about most of them. But my <laughs> one of company, my, but yeah, so. <laughs> Well, one of my fantasies, as weird as it is, was like, wow, I would love to play with Count Basie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or Duke Ellington. Yeah. And by the time I got old enough to do that, that scene was getting ready to end yeah. the only one that was left was buddy which yeah i'm sure there was a couple bands but um that whole that that's where my head was at but i'm of the rock and roll era so um i took or tried to what i've tried to do with my drumming um is take my love and experience with jazz and R&B and soul music, which I was heavily influenced by. And that's what I listened to as a young kid to Otis Redding and Al Green and all that stuff. That's James Brown. I remember going to the Apollo Theater as a uh, 13-year-old to see James Brown. Really? And I, Yeah. And I'll tell you, to see James Brown 
on 125th Street, New York. Yeah. And the ele- element of, of, of uh, you know, uh, an element of African-Americans, whatever, yeah. Uh, yeah. rather than seeing him, let's say, play to a different audience. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, especially especially close- back in the early 60s when, you know, things were really segregated. Yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. And there were not, I don't remember seeing many white people when I was there. You know what I mean? I had a friend a friend in the neighborhood, a delivery guy that I was friends with, a black guy. And he took me up there and it was awesome to see James Brown at the Apollo. And audiences like at the Apollo, if they like something, they go crazy. And if they don't like it, they go they crazy. Let you know. <laughs> they let you know. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. like the Chetland Circuit or whatever. But being exposed to jazz and all that stuff, but being um, basically coming up, uh, starting. See, my, my first experience was not the Beatles, like a lot of people. When I got to California in 60, 61, it was a regional music that broke nationally, and that's called surf music. Oh, Beach and, Boys and uh, Janet Dean yeah, and stuff like now, that. Now, uh, the Beach Boys and Janet Dean, but there were the Trash Men, there was uh, the Ventures, there was the Ventures, a yeah. ton of other yeah. bands that never Dick really... Dale. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Dick Dale was yeah. gigantic in, in Cal- and, and to be in California in well, yeah, cause so, so you, you, your first uh, 10 years or so, you grew up in Detroit, and then you move out to California. So, yeah, that's yeah. going to be just... Like, and and um, I'm listening. Yeah, I'm listening. My I know what my first single was. I bought my first 45. I bought was by a band called the Orlans, and it was called South Street. Now, if you're familiar with that song, it's it's basically uh, New Orleans style music. And for some reason, South Street that single uh, resonated with me. Um, New Orleans, and then the surf stuff. So I start playing drums, and I'm around a lot of musicians, and then the Beatles come out. Yeah, the, and the Beatles, that, that old February 9th, 1964 story, right, Ed Sullivan? Right, but, I, but I'm already into music pre-that, you know what I mean? So um, the Beatles kind of made it okay for everybody, but uh, back then, before the internet and this and that, with the event, uh, a TV back then was the closest to the internet now, where everybody yeah, knows yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the water cooler. The the water cooler talk comes from television, right? Right. Exactly. Now I don't know in 1961 if surf music was as big in New York area as it was in California. I mean, I know the Beach Boys broke, and then they broke internationally, right? Yeah. And and Jan and Dean had some hits, but I'm talking about the other 50 or 80 or no, however many bands. No, right, very right. regional, right. Very regional, and that's an interesting thing, regional music. And there was a time in this country, and there's a little bit of that happening still, regional. Um, to jump, not to jump forward, but you have Memphis, which has a certain flavor. You have Nashville, you have Nashville, you have, um, New Orleans and you have Texas. Now you have other places, California, uh, New York and stuff, but, um, I live in Texas and, and one reason I came to Texas is because there's not a lot of industry here as far as music industry. It's about playing. It's, it's about just the getting gig. out there and going out and doing the gig. Right. 
Exactly. I might as well be living in, I don't know, I could be living in Boston. I don't know if there's a lot of, you know what I mean? But there's a lot of great stuff that's come out of Texas. T-Bone Walker, you know what I mean? A lot of other blues people have come out of Texas. Um, I just interviewed uh, Ed Jurdy from Band of Heathens, and uh, they came out of Austin. Right, right. And and there's such a great scene here. But, uh, okay, getting back to this, the Beatles that are imported from Europe, there was a whole scene going on in Europe where all these English bands, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, they had all taken our music from America and jacked it up a little bit and turned it up and put a different slant on it. But it basically was Little Richard Isley Brothers, whoever, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean, yeah, you could go yeah, on. And yeah. they sold it back to us and presented it in a to new us way. In, yeah. a, in a new way mm-hmm. and introduced the kids that were not born in the late forties, but that were born in the fifties. So by this time it's the sixties and they're anywhere from seven years old to 12 years old. Okay. And they missed, maybe they missed out on the rockabilly stuff and uh, the Everly brothers and all that stuff from the fifties and uh, early, you know what I mean? They're 61. So uh, the Beatles, the Beatles brought, back R&B and all these different things back to America that were, you know, that were kind of lost and, um, and so on and so on. So, uh, I don't even know what the question was, but 65, 65 <laughs> you, is when you live in L.A. Playing. Yeah, 65. So, yeah. so, so you and your brother uh, uh, get a record contract uh, with uh, Yeah, we moved to New York Marv in Levy. 64. Yeah, we moved to New York around 64, 65, and that's when we go professional. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't know how much we knew uh, uh i'm still not sure how much i know now but at that age well, you're, you're old, exposed to all this jazz uh that's who yeah. you envisioned uh, yourselves as when you were really young i i think yeah. you actually did get to meet some of your heroes uh like gene Krupa oh yeah of course i because, did because of your dad right yeah because of my dad um i was exposed to buddy rich and got to know him and then uh, this great drummer who was a big session drummer who had played with Stan Kitt, and his name was Shelly Mann. And he kind of um, mentored me a bit. And uh, he worked with Shorty Rogers, famous uh, writer-arranger for from, from movies. Uh, that movie, uh, Frank Sinatra, one of them is the man with the golden arm. Mm-hmm. Shorty Rogers, uh, a great arranger. And um, people like that. And later on my own, hanging out, uh, getting to, to know Elvin Jones, and Art Blakey and and all these other Max Roach and these other people, uh, Tony Williams and uh, Louis Belson and so on and so on. Uh, and it has some of it has to do with the era that I was came up in. All these great guys were still alive. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And I witnessed. I got to hang out, witness them, many gigs of them, and Count Basie and Duke Ellington, quite a few gigs of theirs. And Buddy Rich and his band. So I came up in that era. That's I come from a from an era that just 
just does not exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say what's happening now. There's it's just different now. Oh, yeah. But um, that that was it's a, it's the just a different story. It's a different you know you know it's uh, a different story. Yeah, uh, it's, but you um, know it's a different. Uh, as we started the conversation, you know the state of music. Uh, you know I think we both agree it's fragmented, and and it's not just fragmented in music. It's fragmented in no. attention. You know the your attention span is uh, you know uh, moved around to so many things and you know people ask me a lot uh, you know well you know what is uh, you know what what is the next big thing for the kids or you know what 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 means the, the same that music did to us and it's really it's probably more social media it's not even music in itself it's uh, you know it's uh, how they yeah. interact with their phones and things like that I think so. the next big thing is accountability. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. Credibility. <laughs> accountability, credibility. Yeah. We don't have <laughs> and, any of that um, right now. Right, right. You know, right. and um and uh, there's gonna be some interesting stuff yeah. coming up in the future, I believe, if things keep going the way they are. But yeah. um but anyway, um, so mid sixties, yeah. you and your brother, uh I think you, you guys had a band called Tony and the Tigers. You actually played on right. Blue, right? Right. There was a, a, a weekly show, music show, that would have people in the top 20, whether it would be the Rascals, the Animals, you know, the Hollies. These yeah, are all yeah. older bands yeah. and um, and different showbiz people, uh, comedians, whoever, a variety show. And we did some of these TV shows, which are on the Internet. You go in there. So we're, we're young, doing a couple TV shows, recording. Um, and then, um, valuable experience, just valuable. Yeah, experience. it was. And then, um, now this is 65. I'm in New York and this is happening and then things start changing. And then by about 69, I would say. Now I remember being at a show, my dad had a show at this theater called the Paramount theater. And basically there was like 10 or 12 acts and my dad headlining and they would do say six shows a day. And each act would come out and do their two songs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Then my dad would come out the end and uh, he had a house. The house band was a guy named that who led the house band was King Curtis. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, on the show was little Richard. And I remember watching little Richard play. This is before one of his famous, he'd come and, you know, for a couple of years and then he'd quit and go back to, to go, you know, do his religious thing. And then, then come out of that and come back into rock and roll, you know, torn between the religious and whatever. Oh yeah. yeah. He'd, he'd done that. Okay. A million times, so. so I noticed there's a guitar player, you know, how people stick out, mm -hmm. you, you don't know who they are, but they stick out. Oh, I know, who guitar, I know who you're going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, and there's this guitar player, and I noticed this guy. I don't know yeah. what his name is, but I remember seeing well, It's how he got fired because he stick, uh, sticks out in front of uh, Little Richard, but sure, hey, go on. <laughs> right. So a couple years later, I'm at this club called Steve Paul Scene, mm -hmm. and Steve Paul was a manager. He had Johnny Winter, Edgar Winter, the Winter Brothers, yeah. and he had a club and at his club, I used to go down there. I was 15 years old. I put on my shades and dress up and, you know, I'm getting into these clubs that are 18 old, older, you know, but I'm on the scene. And in this club, you'd see guys from, you'd see Jimmy Page would be there or Stevie Winwood or Janice Job. I mean, a lot of rock and roll people it was on eighth Avenue. Like a, a, you'd walk downstairs, one of these clubs in a cellar. 
And I go in there, and Jimi Hendrix, now, Jimi Hendrix is now, you know, happening as yeah. far as, and yeah. I go up and just to, to remind the folks, that's, that's the guitar player who was in Little Richard's band, I'm sure you were talking about. Exactly. <laughs> and I go up to him and I start talking to him. He was very approachable, real sweet guy. And I, he said, well, sit down. And I said, look, da-da-da-da, my dad thing in the show. And I, I said, I saw you years ago playing with Little Richard. And uh, we start talking. And he says, you know, a very sweet guy. And... um he said, you want to come down to the studio? I said, yeah, I'd love to. So he invites me down to see him. He says, come down at about five. And I said, okay, tomorrow afternoon at five. He went, no, no, five in the morning. <laughs> so here I am getting all dressed up. My mom's like, what the, What are you doing? I said, I'm going to see Jimi Hendrix. And she was cool. Went, okay. And so I got to know him a little bit. I'm not saying I was buddies or any of that stuff, but, um, I got to go hang out with him in the studio, and, was, and I was ran into my, Electric Ladyland. No, it was it was before it was at the okay. record plant. Oh, the record this plant. was okay, like okay. Um, this would be 69. I don't know what year he died. Seventy one. Yeah. Okay, so it was it was uh, I I went to the opening party for that, but um, um, which when that studio opened and he just died, and then they had the opening for that, but um, um. Just meeting him, being at the right place, right time, and being at that club. That's 70, where 70, brother, 1970 is when he died. But uh, well, yes, but '69 mm-hmm. is when I was at this club, and uh, beginning of '69, and my brother and I were down there one other time, and we meet Todd Rundgren, right. and we get up on stage and we jam. I don't know who got us together. Somebody said, "Ah, oh, you got it." Da da da. And we hit it off with Todd, and Todd said, look, I got a record. I just left the Naz. That was the band that he yep. was in yep. uh, prior to his solo career. And, he, and we said, well, we're moving to L.A. in about a month. He said, well, I'm coming out there to make a record. you want to make a record with me? And this would be his first record called Runt. Right. And um, that's how we met Todd, just being at that place, being at the right place at the right time. And, of course, we hit it off musically and personally. And he came out to L.A. I remember him. We had a house out in L.A. I remember him staying with us. We had a room down as a two-story house, and he stayed with us for a little while. And all we did is jam and play, and he was writing his first record. And we did the first record with him there, you know, in 69. I think you did the first two records with him, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. I hated leaving New York. Yeah, I really loved New York in 69. There was so much going on. But then, you know, uh, different different places, different adventures, and that's like coming out to L.A. in 69. Well, that's being a working musician is, you know, you got to go where the work is, yeah. right? Yeah. So. Well, I was 15, and I was getting ready. Little did I know to quit school, okay? And I'd had it with school, but um, that's when Pamela, you mentioned Pamela DeBars and the GTOs and all that stuff. That's that's when um, we met them at oh, Pamela oh, around 69 or so. Oh, 70 oh. LA was crazy. There was a whole scene going on out there. And um, I spent a few years there and then back and forth to New York on some uh, tours with Todd, um, some attempts at some tours, uh, living at the Chelsea Hotel. Um, in 70, I think it was, I was living at the Chelsea, 70, 71. And that totally, um, that was the end of school for me. Oh, I bet. <laughs> I, I bet. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, you know, 
uh, definitely corrupted and ready to go. <laughs> now I'm 16, 17, you know what I mean? Uh, most oh, people yeah. that are 16 years old I run into now, they do not, you know, I don't know what's, not that I knew what was going on, but I was well into my craft. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, then you then you get together with Bob Welsh and form the Power Trip yeah. in Paris, right? Mm-hmm. It's funny. Bob Welsh had been with Fleetwood Mac right. prior to uh, Stevie Nicks. Mm-hmm. You know, them getting Stevie Nicks. And um, he'd gotten a record deal with Capitol. It's such a small world because they have this drummer. And who was the drummer? There was a band called Pierce that he had put together. And it was a drummer named Tom Mooney. Tom Mooney came from the Naz. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Rundgren's, Rundgren's first yeah. band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I thought was strange, but um, I met small um, business, small uh, world. Yeah, I at this point, prior to this point, I stopped playing rock and roll for a while, and I was hanging out in Compton. You know, NWA that that band is yeah. from Compton, mm-hmm. Inglewood. Oh yeah, and I was playing. I was playing in a lot of jazz joints, uh, doing organ trio music. You know, B three like Jimmy Smith kind yep. of music, mm-hmm. and studying and. Um, you know, trying to get my act together um, and learn more. And um, I've always wanted to learn, you know, try to learn more than whatever I think I know. And um, sometimes I feel like I don't know anything, you know what I mean? Um, And I probably don't, but whatever. And trying to better myself and doing that routine. And I was playing with this keyboard player named Bobby Hunt, a jazz keyboard player. And Bobby Hunt, was in Paris in the 60s with Bob Welsh in a soul band. So I met Bob Welsh, this guy Bobby Hunt, and um, I ended up playing with uh, Paris, a band called Paris. Now, a lot of people don't know that for a while, my brother and I were playing with Ray Manzurk from The Doors. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Okay, we did it. I played with him for almost a year. We did a lot of touring with Ray. Ray had an album out. Uh, on Mercury, and uh, my brother and I, my brother's playing guitar, and then there was a bass player from a band called Silverhead, um, uh, Nigel Harrison, who later went oh, on Wanda to play with, with Blondie, right. right. So um, after um, after being with Ray, I remember um, before after, I think I, that's why I joined up with um, with Bob Welsh. And uh, we did Paris, did this band Paris, did a record, uh, Big Town 2061 for Capital, toured and toured and toured. This is pre-MTV or any of that stuff, you know, that was later to come. Yeah, so yeah. in those days, say you'd play St. Louis and then you'd look at the trade papers. Okay, we played St. Louis, we sold 400 records. And you'd go to another town, yeah, I see, watch your record go up on the charts, you know what I mean? And that's how you promote it and, uh, with radio stations and doing gigs, your, your music. Um, that that all has changed quite a bit now. You know what I mean? Oh, uh, yeah. Definitely. Oh, yeah. So, um, but it's all, um, it's all streaming. Uh, you know, it all comes to yeah. streaming numbers, internet, yeah. and all this yeah. other yeah. stuff. But yeah. back in those days, in different days, you know, yeah. same thing. Some people like a good song, but it's just it's just done different now. And um, and then after, um, I remember getting off the road with Bob. Um, <clears throat> I got sick on the road. I got those palsy. And um, I was recuperating, and then I got a call. Oh, is that is from, that when you uh, picked up the Bell's palsy? Was in the in the mid seventies? 
I've had it several times, okay? Uh-huh. And I'll get to that, how that comes up later. Okay. Now, you know, if I had it last year. Yeah. And um, Bell's palsy, basically, the si- the whole half of your face is paralyzed, okay? Right, right. It's some ner- nerve problem, whatever. And um, I get a call from David Bowie's people. And at this point, David is is helping Iggy out. Get oh, Iggy, you're going okay, to take me to Lust for Life. and uh, Yeah. Uh, so, all right. I get a phone well, call. Well, you actually, you, you played with Iggy's uh, on Kill City, right? Mm-hmm. I had met Iggy through a friend of mine, James Williamson, who was his guitar player and partner for a while, mm-hmm. and uh, from the Stooges. And and mm-hmm. um, I was just friends with James. It wasn't a musical thing. We were friends. You know, mm-hmm. his friend of the family is James and Scott Thurston, who later would go on to Tom Petty, okay? Yeah. But mm-hmm. but uh, Scott had just... Uh, a couple of years prior to this was playing with like Tina Turner. Okay. And, um, so I knew Scott and, and, uh, James, yeah, I ended up, um, I met Iggy through James cause he did the kill city record and we did a couple tracks on that. So I guess, uh, my meeting, uh, David Bowie, um, back when I was with Todd in New York, when David was first came out with the spiders from Mars, you know, with Mick Ronson and, and that whole crew. Oh, yeah. um, that's when I met David. And I guess our name, Iggy, call the sales brothers. So next thing I know, I'm in Berlin, Germany. And this is 1976. So, well, yeah, 70, yeah, the album comes out in 77. You're right. 76. Yeah. Well, there was the first record, which we were not on, um, called The Idiot. Yeah, And that one, David and Iggy did somewhere in France or something, and they wanted to tour behind that. And David was out with us playing piano on the road, and they helped bring in some extra people, you know what I mean, at the gigs. And uh, it was kind of like uh, helping relaunch Iggy's career after years of him kind of being on the downside. You know what I mean? Um, Prior to, uh, to David helping him again, David helped him out. Earlier, oh yeah, same with, with Lou Reed. The, uh, you know, they both were it, had, their time had come and gone uh, from the '60s, it, and uh, David yeah, revived I their mean, career. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, people go on now. It's funny if you're around long enough. But there was a time when you'd go in a record store, and Iggy and the Stooge records would be fifty nine cents in the cutout. Oh, yeah, they were not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's not till it's not until the punk. Era, do they people like begin to look back and go, oh wow, those guys were exactly, were the shit, you know, you know, it's like exactly. you know, they, you know that's so the same thing with the Velvets and MC5 and and some MC5 of those and the whole bit, yeah, yeah. and um, you couldn't give that music away, you couldn't give it yeah. away, yeah. People, you know, uh, and it's funny how things change, and um, so. And at 76, 77, I worked with Iggy. <clears throat> we ended up doing another. We ended up doing a. Um, I did two records for him of a three record deal he had that David had gotten him with RCA records. Mm-hmm. One was called Lust for Life. Yeah. And the other one was called TVI, which was a live record um, that Iggy basically handed um, the company. He had some board record- recordings off the console <laughs> from a gig, went in. You know, sweetened him up a little bit and said, "Here's your here record. You <laughs> yeah, me. here you go." And I'm basically, off. you know, it My cost him ninety nine cents right. production. You know, to make the record. <laughs> I first found out about TBI. I was walking down Sunset Strip and I look in 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 a window of a record store. It says, T- "Brand new record, Iggy Pop TBI." 
I walk in there, look at the record. My name is on it. My work is on there. No one had told me. And that was the first of many records to be put out with me on it without being compensated. Okay. So um, it's not at all. No. So, um, any pop outside of the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin is one of the most bootlegged artists. You know this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there are hundreds, hundreds of records out of Iggy, and a big percentage I'm on them, and my brother's on them. You know what I mean? They're mm-hmm. sold all over the world, mm-hmm. all over the internet. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other thing. But um, after, oh, Iggy, let me let me ask you about Lust yeah. for Life because I, I, the song mm-hmm. itself. It's got this fucking amazing drum sound. And I, I wanted to ask you how you guys achieved that. Well, that was basically the way my drums are tuned and them not messing with me. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah. Is it, just, is it just a single drum track or is it multiple drum tracks? Single drum track. And it's basically what was not done that made the drums sound good. You'll get in a studio with drums and there'll be overtones. And if you listen to like early Motown records, you'll hear the drums. They sound great. You'll hear certain jazz records, the drums, they sound live, but then disco and everything else and recording. And then drums started to change the sound of drums. You know what I mean? Like put a wallet on the snare drum. Oh, the gates and, uh, and uh, reverbs and, get, uh, and all of that. Yeah, okay. let's get rid of the overtones. Mm-hmm. What that record, what the drums have are a lot of overtones because the way I tune them. And they're tuned like drums that would be on a jazz record, right? Ah. But um, uh, unlike tuned, let's say tuned down real low, like on rock records, drums could be tuned down low. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of no one messing with the sound, fucking with it. And that's how you get, that's how the drums sound. That's just the sound of the drums, um, uh, kind of more natural acoustic sound in the studio. So if anything, that was enhanced even more. And, um, you know, not unlike a lot of early Who records, you hear the drums on them, they're real live sounding. You know what I mean? Yeah, a lot yeah, of uh, yeah. English, English bands and stuff that sound, or Hendrix, the first Hendrix record, the way the drums sound, opposed to how drums got after, you know what I mean? Um, or pop records, the way that stuff sounds. Mm-hmm. So it's real noisy, real live sounding, more, more natural sound. And um, yeah, it sounds that like it's in was, a very live room as well. It is. The room had glass on the walls and stuff, uh-huh. and it was it was kind of a live room, and it was nothing was done to them subsequently. What a great drum sound, oh, man! <laughs> you it's, you it's know amazing. what I mean? Yeah. But um, yeah. I it, mean, as it, soon as that song comes on, that's the thing you pay attention to is the the, the yeah. driving drum uh, is just yeah. incredible. Well, the the way that whole record was done, we did that record in about four or five days. I was going to okay? ask you, so how was Bowie as a producer working with him, you know, strictly as, you know, overseeing an other, another artist? Um, Good in the sense that he didn't get in the way of anything and just let it all happen. Mm-hmm. And it's like he's into Bowie's into something that I believe in. Is like happy accidents or letting stuff happen rather than controlling everything. Now, there's a certain, you know, like, okay, how much should I control this? How much should I control this? And let things happen. And if you let things happen, they can go really bad or you can, yeah. they can go really good. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah so, you know, uh, working without a net uh, sort of thing. Exactly. And, working and, uh, without a net. You know, some days the magic happens and yeah, some days it's not, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, know. I mean, you know. I mean, let's face it. Probably the Grateful Dead is the, you know, the, the band of that. I mean, literally, there are yes. some shows where yes. you just go, oh, my God, that was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And then the next night you're like, what What the hell happened to those guys? You know, so I, I know exactly well, what you mean. Well, I mean – it's you know, through experimentation, through uh, exactly. you know, uh, let, letting it breathe and letting it happen and okay. see where it goes. Yeah, it's a lot like uh, you'll get this guy. His heart was broken, so he'll never let his heart open to maybe fall into to another relationship because his last relationship, you know what I mean? So yeah. he's very controlled. As yeah. a person, they're yeah. very controlled, mm-hmm. and they're not open. What you mean. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. in life, as you know, uh, you can control everything, and God, it can be really small, or leave yourself open a little bit, and yeah, some bad shit could happen, but maybe some great shit could happen, but if you keep closed off, will you ever know? Oh, so um, creating is like that, performing is like that, uh-huh. and, um, and, and, like, and that gets back to a jazz sensibility and then the best walk yeah. um, where mm-hmm. uh, let's go for this, like you said, the Grateful Dead, let's see what we can do tonight. Oh, it's not too good tonight. Well, <laughs> and then some nights it's great. There's you know what I mean? No, right, right. Yeah. We we did we tried that with Tim Machine, and I thought most of the time we succeeded by letting it just you know um, let's see what we can do, and and uh, maybe we'll fall on our ass, but if not. We're going to have some real exciting moments. Well, let's get into that. So in the late 80s, uh, David Bowie invites you and your brother to be the backbone of uh, a band he wants to uh, put together that ends up being Tin Machine. Uh, And and, and this is a band. And and there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack here because, you know, basically, um, you know, Bowie had, you know, become a huge pop star uh, in the 80s, you know, and almost a second career. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the, the Ziggy Stardust thing was a small thing, uh, especially in the United States. In fact, most people didn't even know much about Bowie until he did fame like three or four years later. Um, that's right. when he really hits in America. But but then in 83 with Sirius Moonlight, he just becomes the biggest star in the world. And well, then he kind he of had, throws it yeah. away, you know, and, and turns well, to you guys, this, right? Um, he, he started like a lot of artists where he had a, he built it to a hardcore following. Mm-hmm. Let's say he could play to 5,000 people a night. Let's say he could play to 8,000 people a night at that level. Yeah. Okay. More or less. But then, and, and he had a hardcore following, but like a lot of pop, I mean, okay. Just to use as an example, um, the drummer and singer from, Genesis. Phil Collins. Okay, Phil Collins all of a sudden starts getting these number one yeah. songs. Mm-hmm. Now he's playing to 50,000 people a night. Yeah. 70. Uh, so I, I, let me run back here. Let me go back just for a second. I saw James Brown at the Apollo, right? Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Apollo is maybe 1,200, 2,000 people, maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I also saw James Brown at Dodger Stadium. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Why was he at Dodger Stadium? Uh, because he had number one songs. So David Bowie becomes this artist 
that is not a fringe artist anymore. He gets a number one or two songs. I said it was number one, and uh, one or two of them, and now he's playing Dodger Stadium, right? Um, A serious Moonlight tour, gigantic, big, 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 big. Yeah, the next couple of tours are all in stadiums, yeah. Okay, so I'm in Texas, and this is the end of the 80s, and my brother runs into David at a party, and David had just finished the Glass Spider tour or something, you know, Mm -hmm. Some big and, monstrosity, right? And, and David, he runs and hey, it had been a long time, you know, since my brother had seen him, or I had seen him. Now, I'm in Texas working in the studio, producing, doing whatever in Austin. And um, he said, I was thinking about you. And he said, I found this guitar player, David says, this guy Reeves could play. And next thing I know, I get a phone call from my brother. I ran into David. When you come back to California, let's get together and jam. So basically, what we have here is the rhythm section for Iggy, which was my brother, me, and David. You know, David was playing keyboards mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. At, at sound checks and then just hanging out and working with Iggy, we hung out a lot, jammed and stuff. But it was about Iggy back yeah. in 76, 77. Mm-hmm. Now, Iggy's not around, but those memories are still around. Um, you know what I mean? With David. And of course us. So we got together at a little rehearsal place in LA, my brother, me and David and jammed for a few hours. And it was really, it was really exciting. It was like, you know, it really came together. It really did. I mean, um, forget the, the fact what David had become at this point financially. And as far as a star, now he's in a little, sweaty little rehearsal hall with my brother and I, and we're having fun and it has nothing to do with the business. You know what I mean? Like, wow, you're selling this many tickets and you're doing this and who's buying. It wasn't about that. It was about us just being why we all got started playing anyway. Right, right. At least for him, it was, I mean, uh, you know, not rich. He was, <laughs> yeah. but you know what, when you break all that shit down, you know why David, what his fantasy was? He always wanted to play with Little Richard as a sax player. Did you oh, know that? Oh, no, I didn't know that, but I can imagine that. That totally makes sense. Okay. So I wanted to play with Count Basie. David wanted to play with Little Richard yeah. because he did play sax. Okay. Mm-hmm. When he was yeah. 15, 16, 17, he played sax and he sang. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we the all Conrad's have our, our Yeah, yeah. Right. So when you break it all down, uh, you really get back to the reason for stuff and leaving your heart open. What are you, why am I doing this? What, what am I doing? And I know he was asking himself a, a lot of those questions. Okay. Um, and, um, and it clicked and it was nice seeing him again after all those years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, from the 76, 77 being together quite a, quite Doing a bit. Working on, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And you get close, but yeah. in the music business entertainment thing, you can work with somebody on something and get very close. Then you go to different universes and then you're doing something, they're doing something and you may not see them for 10 or 20. You may never see them again. You know what I mean? Yep. But we came together again Next thing I know, he says, I'm living in Switzerland. Come on over. We went to Switzerland, and the guitar player Reeves shows up. We meet Reeves. We start recording, and we're just 
you know, uh, writing music and jamming in the studio, recording it. But after about a week or two, we've got all this material we're recording. And it's evident this is not, David, what do you want to do? It wasn't like that. It was like, here's an idea. Or someone else would go, I got this idea. And then we jam on it. And then we're, I'll try this. And, and it's, it's naturally like a band is where everyone has input. Yeah, okay? a bunch, of, a no bunch one, of 16, 18-year-olds getting together you, in the garage again. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Except one of them. Just happens really, to be insanely famous and rich. <laughs> exactly. But you know what? That's good and all that stuff. Doesn't matter to me. My dad was a legend. Yeah, okay. And yeah. I grew up on that. Yeah. And uh and I knew David back years earlier and it wasn't about it was about Iggy when we were together. Of course David was helping run the stuff. But um I never really worked for the guy. So I'm working with him. Mm-hmm. And um mm-hmm. and we sit around and we go, This is not a David Bowie record and it's not my record. This is a band. And we came up with a name. Who came up now with we the have name? A, I do not know. We wrote a bunch of names down and came up with it. And I wish I knew. I don't. Hmm. I don't. I don't remember. But all I know is we ended up calling it Tim Machine. Yeah. And David had one record left on his contract. <laughs> and I remember when this record was taken into the record label, they went, okay, David. And he said, you can't put David Bowie on it. This is called Tin Machine. They went crazy and not good crazy. They were not happy at all. And he didn't give a shit. Uh And he said, this is Tin Machine. They put the record out. It started to do very well. And surprisingly, the guys at the label, uh, despite what they thought, they couldn't do anything about it. Contractually, he owed them one more record. And, um, and we this put was the it. record out. Right, right. Yeah. And this is it. Now, David is in a band and, um, and we we're having a lot of fun and, and trying to do something genuine, you know, that we liked, you know what I mean? Rather than, uh, what's the hit going to be? What screw all that stuff. And, uh, rock and roll was in a weird place. Then it was right. It was right before, I don't know, what, Guns well, N' Roses. Well, didn't sing all the songs either. I think um, you sing uh, uh, the song Stinks, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, uh, yeah. So uh, David sang most, and then I sang in the yeah. band. And my brother would do a song live. He'd do a song. But, um, and the harmonies. It's re- yeah, so. yeah, yeah, and the harmonies and stuff. But it was a collaborative record. I, I wrote most of the songs on the record with David and my brother and Reeves, and um, everyone was. It was a band, if you can imagine that. Now a lot of people. No, it was. It was a great moment too, because you know the the hair metal thing is beginning to fall apart. Eighties new yep. wave is beginning to fall apart. Where you know there's this you know it comes. I think the first album, the the EP, I think comes out in eighty nine, and that's like grunge hasn't quite happened, but there's this grungy element to it, and there's this industrial. Right. Uh, music element to it, obviously with Reeves Gabrell's, uh, you know, uh, noisy guitar playing uh, that just, you know, it's in evoking a lot of like, you know, and a lot of things like Bowie, he's always a little bit ahead of, uh, of everybody else. And I I don't know if that was intentional or not, but that's kind of where the record sits uh, in there. And it's quite extraordinary when you go back and listen to it. I do know that he had reached a place in his career where it was like, 
I can't keep doing the same thing. I don't want to do the same thing. Oh, and no, he was yeah, almost like that. that. He was, well, he's always done that. And it was like that when I went to Berlin and, um, and uh, Brian Eno, uh, I remember Brian Eno uh, when we were touring England and then they would get together and do low and do all that, you know what I mean? Experimental yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was another time in his career yeah, the where he took a left turn. Mm -hmm. And as an artist, to keep challenging yourself, Jesus, that's opposed to just doing the same thing, you know, from when you begin your career to end your career. That was one thing David did do. You know what I mean? He always was changing things up. He'd get bored. And, so this was another phase of his life. And um, my brother running into him, yeah. timing, da, 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 you know, the rest. So we did this 10 machine thing and um, we put out the record. It, it does well. We were supposed to do a big tour for that record. And then I think he got swayed by a lot of money and ended up, we ended up doing like a week and a half promotional tour. And he did one of the beginning of one of these farewell tour things, you know, those bits like, oh, this yeah. is my last yeah. tour. Yeah, I'm, never gonna play, I'm never going to play these songs again. I remember that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I remember saying to him, like, what am I going to tell you? Don't go do this and make 50 million. And that's what <laughs> I think he was offered. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you know, um, I remember, Tin Machine, we were going to do a real tour, and we didn't. We did like a week and a half tour, and then took about six or seven months off, which kind of messed with it. Now, the audience, David's fans, I would say half of them really dug Tin Machine, and the other half were like, we don't like this. We don't understand this. And um, that's kind of the way it went with that band. It's interesting the Tin Machine stuff now has seemed to pick up a steam with people that have never heard it and a whole new audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. The super group identity kind of worked against the band. Uh, yep. And a lot of a lot of people were unwilling to uh, let it breathe and and be its own thing. You know, you you could yep. you can you can kind of get away with that sort of thing today, where you know you have you know your your big act, and then you have this side project that you, that you do, and everybody goes, oh yeah, oh that's the side project. But back then, you know, nope. there, you were there was this expectation, and you were supposed to fit into this category, and you know this was now uh, you know a square peg trying to fit into a round hole uh, yep. sort of thing, and it's too bad i you know like i said I, I saw the band i thought it was fucking amazing and uh, couldn't wait Thank to hear you. more so um yeah well so uh, so let's move let's move into uh to you. you 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 did a bunch of session work after that you've done some movie soundtracks and uh, as we yeah. said you you, you kind of then moved to austin you, you decided to skedaddle out of uh, the la scene and uh and yeah austin not, permanently right yeah yeah about 93 90 after 10 machine about a year or so after 10 machine i remember my wife and i had split up with a little girl my wife had gone to texas where she had some family and i really missed my daughter i missed my wife i probably missed my daughter more and um regardless of that and i ended up going to texas to be with my kid and i left la la was starting to change mm -hmm. and um you know, the ugly word progress, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and um, I was a little burned on LA. So I went to Texas and, um, and stayed. 
I remember visiting once or twice and on the second or third time to go see my wife and my kid. I just said, I'm not going back to LA. I called a friend of mine, put my stuff in storage and I stayed in Texas. And uh, this is in, in Austin, in Austin. So yeah, for, I first went up to, um, I lived in Austin a little bit prior to Tin Machine. I remember coming up here in the eighties for a little while uh, with my second wife and hung out here for a few months and then went back to LA. But, um, yeah, I first lived in San Antonio, and I'd come up to Austin do gigs and stuff, played all over Texas. Then I moved up to Austin after being in Texas for about a year or so, San Antonio. I moved up to Austin, and I stayed here because it was really all about playing music and and no industry or any of that stuff. Which, it, it was really turning into a musical town then. Yeah, of course. See, the thing about Austin... And if you go back to the Stevie Ray Vaughan's and people like that, and even before Towns Van Zandt and all these people, yeah. mm-hmm. great people, um, like I said, all the great people came out of here, Freddie King and Willie Nelson, all this stuff. Um, Austin, back then, you could go do a couple gigs and rent a house for 200 bucks a month, and it was really nice. groovy. Right. Now, like the rest of the world and the country, now the gigs paid less and the houses are 1800 a month. <laughs> you know what I mean? So... Um, Someone said, yeah, I got a great deal. I know what you mean. I got a great, yeah. Someone said, uh, they live in LA. I got a great deal on an apartment. It's two bedroom. I said, well, what do you mean? He says, it's cheap. I said, do you mind telling me how much it is? He said, yeah, 3,200 bucks a month. <laughs> now, yeah. when, when I was in LA years ago, a two bedroom apartment, you know, I mean, it was 400 bucks. 500, uh, yeah, 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 four or 500 yeah. bucks. Yeah. But that's was the groovy thing about Austin. And, and the cool thing about here is there are so many clubs and so many different kinds of music. Um, and it really has got a great music scene here. A lot of people will come here and find players here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? For bands, mm-hmm. uh, especially whether it's Europe or LA or New York, they will find players out of here because there's just so many of them. So, so many good. great yeah, players. So yeah. Because there's, you know, yeah, you're out playing every cool. night, you know, you're, you're yeah, keeping the jobs going. Yeah. Yeah, it's about the gig. It's mm-hmm. not about we're going to try to get a record deal or da 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 da. It's about the gig. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I I liked being here and playing, playing all kinds of music. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and playing all over Texas. So I came here to reinvent myself or just to keep playing and do something different and get out of California. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, yeah. and I'm glad I did. And California's great. There's some great people there. New York is great. I've lived in both places, but um, I decided to make this my home, and I've been here ever since. And I go to New York and L.A. to do this and that and the other thing, but I always come. It, it's a great place to leave, and it's a great place to come back to because of the music scene, and there's so many great players here. Yeah. You know? Now, I know you've worked in a band with Charlie Sexton, uh, and uh, who, who's another Bowie connection. Uh, he played, He played. Charlie played with Bowie for, uh, for a while. Yeah, I know Charlie. Charlie, from back when uh, Charlie had his little solo career with MCA Records, Beat yeah. So Lonely. That's mm-hmm. when I met Charlie. And I've known Charlie forever. And his brother, Will, who I know from back here in the early 80s, uh, Austin, and both of them, done lots of recording with them and gigs. And and, and Will, um, Will is the one that uh, he moved to Memphis a couple of years ago. And I sure did miss him being here, but I remember him saying, you got to come to Memphis. You got to come to Memphis. So eventually he called me 
one day said, hey, you got to come up here and do some gigs. I said, okay. He said, well, you want to come this week? I went, okay. So I went to Memphis, and what Will had done is he had booked oh, a he gig had a plan. for me. He had a plan for you. Yeah, he booked me a gig, my own gig, which uh, after getting off the phone a couple of days later, this guitar player I had met in Nashville. I moved to Nashville for a little while years ago, mm-hmm. and I met this guitar player there, um, and he said, so what do you want to do on your gig? And I went, what gig? He said, well, we'll book you your own gig. <laughs> so I sent this guy a couple of cover songs and that, uh, kept it simple. I went up to Memphis, rehearsed. I got all these players together through this guy, rehearsed for a day or two and did my own gig up there. Then, then Will came back in town. He was out of town. I was staying at his house. And then I did a couple of gigs with Will and his wife. He performs with his wife, Amy. And um, we did a couple of gigs and I was getting ready to come back to Austin. He said, what are you doing next week? I said the same old thing, you know, my kid, my wife, da, da, da. I've got a 11 year old. Mm-hmm. And he said, why don't you stay another week? I went, okay. So that week he took me over to, um, the studio that the owner, one of the owners, of, um, fat possum, Bruce, uh, Watson, that, he owns a studio up there in Memphis. And I went there. We did some recording. Will was putting together some instrumental record or something, and we're writing some stuff and playing. Okay, you wrote this song with me. Whatever. And I got to meet Bruce. And after a couple hours, we were done recording, and Bruce says, look, uh, you want to record something for Fat Possum? I got this other side label called Big Legal Mess. It's part of Fat Possum. I said, yeah, that'd be great. So... I was supposed to record a single for them. And um, I wanted to take advantage of like putting a single out. I would put four songs on it. He said, yeah, but you got to keep it like seven and a half minutes aside. Right. Final. Mm-hmm. And um, so I go up there. I, I said, you want, I can do it with some Memphis guys. He said, no, nah, I bring the guys from Austin. And I get this guitar player. This this, this is team. your band Hunt Sales Memorial, right? Exactly. So, this guitar player, Charco Jean, and from Austin, I met him here, he's from Holland. And um, I said, okay, so I came back here and worked a bunch of songs up and go up, go back to Memphis with Charco and this bass player we had, this guy C at the time. Do you remember a rockabilly guy named Ronnie Dawson? Ronnie Dawson. Mm. You familiar with him, Ronnie mm. Dawson? Mm. Okay. I will be right. in, in about an hour. Well, sure. check him out. You know what I mean? Great. And uh, the guitar player that's been working with me, as a kid, he played with him. Okay, 15-year-old. And uh, and uh, so regardless of that, so Charco, we go up there, start, we cut a bunch of tracks. And then I get a text message from Bruce saying, forget the single. And I'm reading, I'm going, oh, great. He said, let's do an album. <laughs> so the single turned into an album because I just, I kind of came over prepared. You know what I mean? And he got, he started working with me in the studio and saw that, you know, how what was the I was. single, the, the, the first single of the album one day? It wasn't at the time. <laughs> the oh, song, okay. the, the song, there's a song on a uh, record called Sorry Baby. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And by the well, way, you know, everybody, it, 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 this is a great rock and roll record. It is a straight up, in your face rock and roll record. So it was. So it that, was. It was. Sorry, baby. Right. 
that's the song that was really <laughs> that well liked and as if you listen to the lyrics of it um it's a little edgy yeah but oh um, yeah yeah uh, it, it's a little bit about uh, some problems that you've had yeah exactly but that at this point that stuff is mainstream because it's on the cover <laughs> yeah. time magazine and every corner in the city you know every yeah, city and every yeah. block now so it is kind of commercial the way i saw it at least it is now but um um Bruce saw in me the value in me. I've been around a long time, despite, you know, someone my age going to get a record deal. Can you yeah, imagine yeah, that? You, you've never put out a solo album before, right? No. And most people they're signing, let's face it, they're not 64 years old. <laughs> <laughs> no. Are they? They not should. Maybe, maybe they should be, uh, given yeah, uh, what well, I've heard. So, uh, well, I mean, um, and I think Bruce is in the documenting and, and, and he saw how I worked and, and saw what I was capable of and just went, yeah, I like this. I like where you're coming from. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we do this record. We did it real fast. You know, it was done really fast, this record. And, um, and then I shot a couple videos up there with this filmmaker I ran into. I yeah, those, those were filmed in Memphis, it looks like. Yep. And they were done. The budget was about $2. You know what I mean? <laughs> Literally took the camera out and it was, you know, just kept yeah. it real. You know what I mean? And, and nothing fancy. Just trying to get the message in the song and just, you know, whatever, the vibe. And um, so well, it, it, it fits for the song. So definitely. Yeah. Thanks. So um, uh, Bruce gave me an opportunity to put it right. I never thought, see, for years I've been down here recording and occasionally doing gigs with my band. And um, I never thought of shopping a deal just because I know what I'd be up against. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Whether it's like, uh, you know, how the business is. And uh, this is a guy that really, um, you know, is into music. He's, the other acts that he has on the label, he's the first one that had the Black Keys, you know what I mean, which oh, were different. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. Black Keys came from their label, and they've got Tom Van Zandt, his catalog, they have Al Green catalog. Oh, they had uh, okay. a lot of blue, a lot of blues people, um, L.L. Burnside, you know, T-Model Ford, I think. So just oddball, but it's about the music. That label is really, it's, you know, it's about the music. And um, imagine first, that. Right. I know. Isn't that strange? <laughs> and, um, you know, it is a business. Yeah, of course. But it's not, it's music first to those guys. Yeah. And he saw the value in me. And offered me a deal. I did not go looking for a deal. Mm-hmm. I see. I met. It was like where opportunity and preparation meet. Right. You know what I mean. I was right. prepared right. for it because I've been oh, writing you can't for imagine years. Anybody else being that that prepared, right? With everything that we've yeah. talked about today, think about it. I yeah. Mean, you've had an extraordinary but life I mean, as a sideman, and now now yeah. you get your your opportunity. So yeah, I, I, I see right. what you mean. So, but but it's not like. The good old days. I don't care about the past, really. I don't live in that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, you know what Constantly I mean. I'm, I'm interested in like what song I, I'm working on right now, or what you know what I recorded a week ago in a friend's studio, and that's all I've been doing. It's like over the years I've worked with Bootsy Collins and a bunch of weird people, uh, and people don't know that about me. You know what I mean? Then mm-hmm. I've played with all these other people and recorded with them. You know, played Dixieland and played this and played that, and. Um, so I've just been doing my thing 
here in Texas, and like I said, I'll fly to New York, LA, do some sessions, or go fly somewhere and produce somebody, and kind of under the radar. So I've never stopped, even though Tin Machine was the last real public thing people have seen me with. They had some push and promotion, you know what I mean? But um, I've kept playing, working in studios, writing and recording all the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I never stopped. I got out of, you know, L.A., which is a major place, and, and came to Texas because they're just, like, living here better. And, um, like I said, the musicians. But a Memphis man, I've spent a lot of time in Memphis this last year. It is a great place, and, and, and the whole town and all the musicians have been really cool with me. I've done a lot of gigs down there, um, you know, where I'll put a band together and just go do a gig, you right. know. Right, Um or, or go do some recording sessions. I remember we were cutting some demos for Al Green a while back. Um, I don't know if he's going to do the tracks or not, but just a lot of interesting stuff. And a lot of people were working out of Memphis. Um, you know, Keith Richards did a bunch of work down there mm-hmm. years ago, mm-hmm. his solo records. And I got to meet uh, Willie Mitchell, Boo Mitchell, Willie Mitchell's son who did the Al Green stuff uh, at the studios for Al Green recorded. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, there's some great studios, Sam Phillips, you know, from oh, Sun, Sun Records. Oh, Sun Records, Stax is there. Yeah, yeah. and oh, there's yeah. Sam, yeah. Sun, a Sam Phillips studio, the studio they built after they sold uh, uh, Elvis to um, RCA. Yep. It's still going strong. When <laughs> you walk in the studio, and I think they built it in 61 or something, 59, it still looks the same. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. weird. Uh, Memphis is like... Uh, it's like you're in some movie and you're not in a movie. There's signs there that say we have air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Which like, was a oh, hot dude. new product uh, yeah, 60 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so um, there's Starbucks there, but not on every corner. Mm-hmm. And um, it's funny to go to a place like that. There's still places in America where they haven't torn everything down and built a strip mall. You know what I mean? And and Memphis is funky. It's so great. The people there are great. It reminds me of being a little kid in Detroit. You know what I mean? Um, Not everybody can hang in Memphis. You know, if you're not a racist, well, then you're going to have a good time there. (laughs) Right. You hear me? Right. Right. Um, Right. So, um, like I said to someone there some of my best friends are white people (laughs) okay all right so the album's called get your shit together why that title yeah um uh, it had to do with everything in me and uh you know so have you yeah i got my shit together more or less i mean um it's like i'm not on any campaign for anything this or that or anything else but um being a um, someone who came up in the music business and just you know um, the drugs, oh, and all that shit, of course, yeah, you know, course. and uh, finally to uh, as of today dealt with that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Being a, a long time user and um, yeah, getting my shit together. I guess it, it's towards me and it's towards everybody else. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, get your shit together. And um, I have, and uh, it's good for me. It doesn't change the cost of bananas at the grocery store. No. But um, it's maybe easier for me to maneuver. 
right. you know, and just be a human rather than um, being living like a fucking animal. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just, not just for, for everybody. Just for the next fix. I get you. Yeah, right. it's not for everybody. And you know what? Everyone's got to do what they got to do. It's yeah. just as far as my, my life. Uh, so many people I've known, and I don't want to drop names or anything, but people that we know in music that we've lost. We've yeah. lost some people this year due to this shit. Yeah. And just the people I know from the old days that are all gone, Johnny Thunders and everybody else yeah. that, I, that, that was around the scene that I knew that are all dead. And the fact that I've made it this far, it's unbelievable to me. You know what I mean? But mm. uh, all the jazz people I was around and just everybody. And um, someone asked me the other day, what do you think the entertainment? Well, of course, traveling, doing, you know, people down the road all the time. And, you know, whether it's, it's hard John life. Cash, yeah. it's a hard life. But I also told them that there's some plumber's kid that's getting ready to OD right now in uh, Ohio. Yeah. And yeah. this shit hits everybody. Nowadays, you know what I mean? Nowadays, yeah. There's, there's, there's no separation anymore. Uh, no. You can't say, not. oh, the, that's because they had a bad childhood or they grew up on the wrong side of the tracks uh, or what have you. No, it's everywhere. It's it's It's, it's, it's everywhere. everywhere, and let's look for a reason. There's, uh, you know, what is the reason? I don't know. And and all we can do for any problem we have, I don't care what problem it is, is take responsibility for our stuff. And Step one, try to own work it. on it. Work on it every day. Yeah, yeah. No. Work on our shit. And if yeah. that means being a little bit nicer, and if we are rude to someone going, you know what? I'm sorry for being an asshole. You know what I mean? And um, But we live in weird times right now. And um, this kind of reminds me of when, like, Nixon was in the White House. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Like, oh, yeah. um, I, or and, and, and worse, uh, maybe Nixon times and, 10. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And um, so maybe there's some interesting stuff that's going to come out of this. Cause, um, that always does. You know, there's, there's, there, you know, uh, chaos always breeds opportunity. And, you know, um, you know, the, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, uh, uh, it's backlash, you know, it's backlash to bad and there's backlash to good. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, there is. You know, we're, 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 you know, a lot of good will come out of the, the awfulness that, uh, you know, we're going through and hopefully it won't get too much more awful, uh, before it starts to turn a corner again. So, so, hey, who plays on the record uh, with you? Well, uh, I said this guitar player that's, that we've worked together named Charco Gene mm -hmm. is playing guitar on it. And um, bass player was no longer with me, a guy named C mm -hmm. uh, from Austin, and um, a couple horn players. I think you have a lot more material uh, for more records, right? Yes, I do. And uh, I'm hoping that... Uh, you know, God willing, and we're here. Um, we'll have some out. We'll have some out this next year. You know what I mean? I am in no shortage of material. That's for one thing. You know what I mean? What mm -hmm. I do a lot of the times is I sit and write music, mm -hmm. and I'm constantly writing and uh, either writing, rehearsing, or or helping someone else out in the studio. But that's all I do. You know what I mean? Uh, outside of raise my kid, I have an eleven year old and a wife. And uh, basically, it's just the family or creating music. You know what I mean? That's, yeah. that's all I do. That's all I've been doing. And uh, sometimes music, it was said to me, and it's a cornball thing, but it really is. Uh, sometimes it's 10%. 
inspiration and 90% perspiration. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. means you sit down at whatever you do and you put the time. You know, all this stuff, it's all about the work. You know, it's all about the work. It's the execution. That- it's yeah. It's uh, just you gotta you gotta get up and you got to uh, perform every day. Uh, and and exactly. if you do, if you do something, will good come out of it uh, eventually? Yeah, and 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 um, just work it. If I could say anything to anybody, if there's anyone that's listening that's like hasn't been doing this long, you know, and been doing it for a long time. It's just all about the work. It's all about playing and writing and working on your shit. And um, all the other stuff, like right now, it seems in part of society, like, I want to be famous. Yeah. For what? For what do you want to be famous for? Shopping and going out with sports figures? (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? There's no substance um, to that. Right. No, there isn't. And, um, and, And luckily... My take when I was young, I used to love seeing these guys that were, had been on the road forever. And maybe they, maybe when I was 13, they were maybe 50 years old. And I'd see them or 60 and they were bringing it. They were bringing it and they've been doing this forever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And un, unlike selling insurance, I'm retiring at whatever Willie Nelson is still going. <laughs> you know what I mean? And a lot of those guys, you know, they play till they drop. Exactly. It, there's not, you know, I ain't going to be retiring. Why no. would I retire from what? Right, right. You know, right, I right. can't afford to, number one, <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't want to. Mm. And, um, you know, I'd say I probably, at my age now, I probably could have picked something else to do as a vocation and at this point in my life I would have had a 401k and this and that and that I don't even though I looked someone sent me a clip from the internet and they said my net worth was 12 million really <laughs> surprised to you huh well I had six bucks in the bank so <laughs> it was a surprise to me but I mean um if I don't work I don't eat and that's just my shit. And I never got into music for the for some fame or for money. Because if I got into it for money, I'd be, you know, I yeah. mean, that's yeah. a joke. Yeah. And, and yeah, there's money to make at this game. But that, that's not what got me going. I had to learn how to make a buck to try to make some money to live doing this. And, I, and I've gone and dug ditches and done this and that, yeah, to make money, to, to feed kids and stuff. But, um... I got into it for all the wrong reasons, which to me were the right reasons. Passion, and, and that's love, kind of, just yeah. The, the, you couldn't live. You couldn't live life without it. Exactly, and a lot of musicians, most of them, they're driven to do this, and and you can't tell them no. No, there is and, no plan. B. It's this is it. No, there is no a backup plan. I don't know about that, <laughs> and I'm just lucky that I can still do it and i'm i hope to be doing something that resonates with people and um and um i sure do miss a few people that are gone that i came up with i sure you know what i mean mm-hmm. I, I i thought i thought one day i'd run into david you know what i mean and um hey man and that won't happen you know what i mean so um 
I no, think about I, him a little. That was uh, that was two years ago uh, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And uh, so many others that are gone. But, I think you, uh, I think you lost your mom around the same time, right? Yeah, I did. I lost my mom. I lost him. Um, and uh, it was a rough year. You know what I mean? And I, you know, um, it's rough. You know, anyone that has any family, fucking go give them a hug. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's funny, man. Life is strange. And life is for the living. Of course it is. And and, and death is something that is going to happen to all of us. But um, I, I, I'm just so appreciative of a lot of things in my life. And, and to, for uh, Bruce over at uh, yeah. Big Legal Mess, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for him to give me a shot to do this is everything. And that I'm still going, and that he well, you did him proud. You, you did him proud. It's a great record. So thank you very much. Are you and are I'm, you planning I'm, on touring yeah. around the country? Yeah, um, I'm hoping we get out and start touring May, hopefully. Cool. You know, somewhere around there. I'm in rehearsal now. We've been rehearsing, and we got we got a couple gigs coming up locally. And then try to get this thing on the road, either the States or Europe. I'm not sure yet. I just have to wait. The record will be out soon and yeah. we'll see. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. I get, of, uh, I get a lot of, I get a lot of emails and, and things from around the world of people that uh, it's amazing every day. And I have for years that people, I guess, 10 machine fans and people throughout the other stuff I've done that I, I'm unaware of, but, um, that, uh, are real appreciative and some people like if I, if I've done anything that's made, that's turned anybody on musically, then that's pretty good. You know what I mean? I think Um, we talked about quite a few of them today. Well, I mean, if, if, if one can inspire anybody, Jesus, I mean, you know, that's a great thing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. To me it is because as a, as a young kid coming up, I just think of all the people that inspired me. And to be able to inspire anyone else is what a compliment, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what comes around goes around. And, you know, uh, Louis Belson and Buddy Rich and those guys inspired you. And I'm sure you are uh, inspiring uh, today's and tomorrow's drummers, uh, you know, today. And I think this record will help uh, help that. So we want to see you out on the road. So you let us know when that's uh, going to happen. It was a I great will. pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, Thank Hans, you. Thanks for being on Deeper Digs in Rock. Thank you very much. That is a guy who seriously sold his soul for rock and roll. Rundgren, Iggy, Bootsy, Bowie, uh, always the sideman until now. 
As I said at the top, with Hunt, he was the secret weapon in whatever band he was in. We really urge you to take a listen to the new album by Hunt Sales Memorial, Get Your Shit Together, because it sure sounds like Hunt has done so in spades. Recorded in Memphis, it is a great raw rock and roll record. Uh, You know, like they used to make. It's real, you can feel the blood and sweat dripping off of it. And if you do go out and grab it, I'm betting we will see the Hunt Sales Memorial playing all over the country in 2019. All right, I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Pantheon Podcasts. Until next week, keep up the rockin'. the wrongs of social injustice oxfam america works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives develop long-term solutions to poverty and campaign for social change and we do it with the help of our friends in the music world the beatles were oxfam supporters back in the day so were the stones and through the years musicians and music fans have helped oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.